Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip tackles questions such as, what is deflation? What is inflation? Philip, how are you so calm with everything going on? Should I pay off debt or invest in the market? How do I think about when to sell my stock options, grants, or warrants that I get from the company that I work for? Why is it so important to understand currencies? With the answers, here's Philip. All right, hope y'all doing good today. This has been one of the most interesting weeks in the market since I got since I was in, you know, in the business early on. My my first or second year in the business was actually it was like two, uh, it's almost my third year, but I did, I did a year in college and then I got through my full, you know, first year as a full-time advisor. So this is my second year as a full-time advisor. It was 2008 and you know, I'm, I don't think this is a 2008 scenario because the whole financial system was 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 at risk, and this is a little bit less scary than that. But it's kind of a hybrid between, well, the the emotions are like 2008; those are definitely like the same, the, the chaos and the uncertainty and the constant on the phone all the time. But it feels more like, from an economic standpoint, a, a 2000 type drop right now. And I'll explain that in some of the questions. But yeah, it's been a, I've probably been on the phone every day for at least four or five, six hours. I've got some great questions from those conversations, from text messages, from emails. I organized them into about eight or so questions that can get the sum of what I talked about with, with people. So let's, let's roll into it. First question. What is deflation? And some people might mean, Philip, I don't even know what deflation means. But if you're watching CNBC or reading any of the financial news, you hear a lot of folks talk about inflation. There, there's two scenarios that create a problem for economies. It's inflation, hyperinflation. And that's when paper money is like losing value rapidly. Uh, so you can, if you like want to Google something, Google hyperinflation in Zimbabwe hyperinflation in Germany, you know, after they lost the war. And that's where people, where you hear stories of people taking wheelbarrows of, of money to the grocery store to buy bread because it's worth, you know, so little. And it's and rapidly, you know, goes up. So deflation is the other end of that where prices are going down because the global economy is slowing down or the country economy is slowing down. because It can be country by country or global. This is a global deflation uh, that's happening, similar to what was happening and was avoided in 08, but we kicked the can down the road, so the can is, the can is here. And so what happens in deflation is, you know, you saw, you saw the price of oil go down because demand is, is dropping. You also see, and we've had downward pressure on wages, so the average, you know, wage in, in real terms for, for most Americans has been flat at best, and you hear about the middle class getting eviscerated. That was just part of the deflation that was already started in 08 that we kind of put a Band-Aid on and inflated asset prices. So it's it's coming back strong. And the, the biggest problem of deflation for economies is the fact that whenever you have downward pressure on prices, that means interest rates fall. And as interest rates fall, that means banks uh, make less money on the loans they make, which makes them less applicable to make loans. And when you have an economic system, liquidity or money is kind of like the blood. And so a, a better analogy would be uh, the economy is going anemic. It's losing blood. 
And that's no bueno because what, what also is happening, again, is you got insurance companies that are struggling too because they made promises on annuity contracts um, and they said, hey, we're going to pay you this money guaranteed every single month. Uh, but they're investing most of their money in government bonds, which Europe bonds are at zero already. Japan's bonds are have been under 1% since 94. Uh, we're at a 1% 10-year government bond rate and so the interest that they make to pay out the promises they that they promised is that mad than that up right so that that's a ticking time bomb and same is true with pensions right because pensions are that money goes into an insurance company and it's going to have the same problem and so here in Dallas um, when I moved here nine ten years ago I met a couple of Dallas firefighters and police officers that was telling me about their um, their drop program and I'm going to mess up the details of it, but the gist of it was they said, hey, no, you know, I, the money that we get is guaranteed at 8% a year or something like that. And and I'm like, well, that's crazy because pension plans, which are backed by insurance companies, they're investing in mostly safe stuff. And I know the safe, you know, bonds weren't paying 8% guaranteed, not nine, 10 years ago. Um, and so I was like, man, I'm mad that that up. And so you fast forward to a couple of years ago when that whole, you know, scheme blew up. That was something that I foresaw because the math didn't add up. So this is the same way reason why reason why people are you, you see a guy like Bill Ackman going crazy on CNBC or all these people that know about money and all these CEOs who are running to the government of money. They understand what's going on. The most Americans don't like deflation is bad because a lot of obligations that were promised pension plans, insurance contracts, th- those promises are going to have to be broken or put some sort of crazy band-aid, you know, with money pumped from the government, which ultimately comes from the taxpayers, which means higher taxes. And it's it's a long cyclical cycle, but it's not a good situation. And so that is what's going on. Here's some historic context that may also help you think through it. So I know for sure this was in the Old Testament. So it's a, so so people that practice Judaism understand it. Christians understand it. I haven't really read Islamic context, but it's the year of Jubilee, right? The year of Jubilee was where back in the day, you were supposed to every 49 or so years forgive debts and return property back to its original owner. So if you if you got over indebted, person you were indebted to forgave the debt and everything returned to the same. And what that did was it avoided the fight between the rich and the poor that we have not because capital gets too much of its share. If followed, nobody really actually followed it, but if followed, it helped avoid deflation, right? Because you don't get promises that were overpromised. So the simple term is it avoided in, in an economy, you have capital that gets benefit and workers that gets benefit. And when that gets off too far off, you have political friction and then you have economic consequences, you know, that come when promises have to be broken. This helped avoid that. Since we don't practice it, we're in a situation now where that is going to be forced to happen in some sort of painful way, meaning people who have capital are going to lose money, uh, banks and investors, which is already happening, and taxes are going to have to you know, make up the gap to, to pay for it. And I don't want to go super detailed on that because that will be a whole episode, but the point is uh Going back to my analogy, deflation is a lot like the economy going anemic, right? And it's happening in Europe, happening in America, and that's that's no bueno, right? 
don't panic because there are ways to make money in this type of a situation. Just know that the returns are in the returns, the industry, and I've been telling my clients, the expected returns of portfolios are lower than what people remember in history because returns are going to, the base benchmark is interest rates. So, so in the late seventies, early eighties, interest rates were at 14%, you know, the guaranteed government rate uh, of the U S and then you had returns that were higher over the next 20 years. So when interest rates are lower, your returns are going to be lower. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because also cost of living, right? The cost of oil and all that kind of stuff was high relative to how much people made back then. And it was lower over the last 10 years when we had lower rates. So if you invest appropriately, even though returns are low, you still can reach your goals because the cost of living will also adjust. But it's not a situation where you can just blindly you know, just buy and hold, right? Because there's things you, you, you want to do tactically and or you just want to go be well diversified. And most people aren't well diversified. Most people are like invested only in U.S. stocks for the most part uh, in some sort of mutual fund and stock. And so you got to be thoughtful about how you invest in type of a situation. And so we, we may cover that in one of my other questions. But that's deflation and why folks are so uh, afraid of it. Next one. What is inflation? I already answered that, but I'm going to give a nuance. So I explained inflation is when the cost of living rises faster. But, but here's, here's what it does to an investor's portfolio if you do not pay attention to inflation. And inflation also is going to factor into what's going on, and I'm explaining that in a second. But imagine you get a job, and the job says, hey, we're going to pay you whatever, 100000 a year. But that's it. Like, we're never going to pay you anymore. You wouldn't love that because the cost of living goes up over time. And so when people invest their money and they don't pay attention to inflation, meaning if, you're, if, if your money does not keep pace with the cost of living over time, it's like that person that is getting paid a salary for the same time. Your money won't work as hard as it needs to be, so you won't be able to buy the things you need to buy when you need to use the money later. And so that's really, really important. And I don't... It's going to sound like I'm contradicting the deflation conversation where we talked about deflation drives prices down. And so I'm going to have to go a little nerd and explain deflation will drive prices down. But a big part of the cost of living in America is housing and health care. And to pay for some of these things that we're going to have to do to get us out of the situation, taxes are also going to go up. So in, in real dollar terms, like outside of the gas and all that kind of stuff, you'll see very likely those things go up. You know, the health is because we have an aging population and there's just capacity that uh, supply and demand says that if there's more demand than supply, uh, that creates upward pressure on prices. The other part is housing. Just like America is the New York and L.A. of the world. So New York and L.A. is really expensive to live from a real estate standpoint because it's wherever it's where a lot of business is done. America is where a lot of business is done. So for the world, for, as it keeps getting richer, like we're that place. Like even even if you look at London, the U.K. hasn't been the world dominant power for a long time. But London real estate is still expensive because it's a financial capital. It's where money is. And so the U.S. is that place. So it's going to get more expensive for us in total in the U.S., which is a big part of where people spend their money. So even though other prices might be low because of deflation, that's very likely in the long term not going to stop. And then you got a third component, 
and this is the this is the part of inflation that is a bit confusing because as governments start pumping money into the system so so right when 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 you want to jumpstart an economy you can lower interest rates that puts that that helps with the anemia problem right that helps that helps pump get more blood into the system but the problem when interest rates are at zero is lowering interest rates no longer frees up money right so for example if you ever pumped air into your tire when you were a kid of your bike, you would push down and the air your tire would go up. Think of interest rates as doing that. So in early 80s, late 70s, when interest rates were at 14%, when we ran into a financial trouble like in 87 or 89 or 94 or 97 or 98 or 2000 or 2008, they were just lower interest rates. And that would put money in the system and then that would help put more quote-unquote, blood in the system. Well, when they're at zero, what can you do? You can't do that anymore. So you have to start printing money and giving it to people. And, and what that does is, going back to supply and demand, if you have a lot of supply of something because you, you're creating out of thin air, that will, if it's done wrong, which is going to have to be done wrong because they're going to have to put a bunch of money into the system, that makes people say, hey, look, I don't, like, it's, they're, they're printing a lot of this stuff, and I don't know if I want to hold this stuff because it's not worth much. And so then that that potentially can create inflation in the long term, right? Meaning the value of holding paper currency goes down. And, and so since it's going down, even even if it costs the same $2 for a loaf of bread or whatever, because the value of the dollar is going down, that makes that cost more, right, in the real terms. And so that's something that we're very likely going to deal with because the um, Europe is going to get irresponsible with money to fix this problem. And so will um, the U.S. And some people might be like, well, Philip, they know that. Why are they going to get irresponsible with printing money to do it? Because if they don't, people, there's going to be social unrest. If you look at every country where the economic system collapses, it leads to revolutions. And what people in power don't want it's people on the streets doing revolutions. And so they're going to put a Band-Aid and they're, they're going to print the money and they're going to throw money at us and $1,000 here or whatever they got to do to fix the problem temporarily because they're in power for a limited time and they just want to fix it while they're in power. That's what they're going to do. I don't claim to be a political expert, but if I had to pick a revolution or that, right, I might do the same thing too, right, it kick and, and figure out how to fix the problem down the road. And so... The inflation part is also, and we're in a unique time where deflation is an issue and high inflation is going to be an issue. So the people, and I'm, and this is important because a lot of folks are saying, well, I'm just going to go to cash. Philip, I'm just going to go to cash because I want to protect my money. And I'm like, no, like cash is, cash historically, maybe, has, has it's definitely been a terrible store of value. So maybe it barely kept pace with the cost of living. But we're entering into a period of time where cash is not going to keep pace with the pace of living based on what I'm looking at in history and my analysis. So meaning you may look at the million dollars and it may still be there, but it's not going to be able to buy what it needs to buy five and 10 years from now. So, you, so you're not going to be able to just bury your head in the sand. You're going to have to have an investment strategy that factors in deflation and inflation. And I was on the phone with a guy. Uh, yesterday and he's a potential new client and so we were talking through what's going on and he said hey man you're so you're so calm how are you so calm through this we'll make this question number three right philip how are you so calm with everything going on and what i explained to him was human beings we like to only remember things that happen in our lifetime 
And we definitely don't pay attention to things that, ha- that happen outside of our country. And there's two things that I really like. I really like m- math and money, and I really love history. Like when me and my wife go on vacations, our fun time is going to go take tours of history. Like I just enjoy history. So when you combine history and money, like th- that's my spare time, my pastime. I've probably read every book about money and history and different economies. And so the same thing happens over and over again. So I got into this year of Jubilee conversation. And so we're, we're, we're going to something that has, hasn't happened in the recent history of most people investing right now, but it's, it's played out before. We've had the last 50 years where uh, we started out worrying about hyperinflation and then that went away for 40 years, right? Then we experienced a temporary level of deflation in 08. And then we put a bandaid on that. But now we're going, we're going to, to a position where you're, you're having to think through how do I invest in a situation where there's a high risk of inflation and deflation. And so I know if I give you an example, nobody's going to actually go back in history and look at, uh, you know, look at investing back in this time period because it take a little bit of work. But a micro example of that is look at look at the time period between 2009 and in 2011, that was kind of a textbook example of where uh, there was deflation, but then there was also a lot of government printing of money, which created uh, a scare for high inflation. And look at what asset classes, you know, did well in that period of time, right? And that's the playbook. The things that did well in that period of time were companies that were eating the lunch, established players. So think of the the Fang. Right, the Apple, Google, Facebook, right, the the growth stocks that were strong financially but had a solid monopoly and were growing fast. But then also what did well was gold and treasury bonds. Both did well. Typically they don't both do at the same time, but over that period of time a portfolio of that combined appropriately did really well. And so those are things that I'm saying when you're building a portfolio, you're gonna have to be thoughtful and you're gonna have to be diversified. And you're going to have to understand the risks of deflation and inflation because standing still in cash is not going to keep your your, your money safe. The people that sat out in cash in 2000, so, so imagine you being 52 and you had a million dollars and then 2008 hit you and let's say it dropped your million to, to, to 600,000. What, what people always say is, well, okay, I'm just going to sit out until it's safe to get back in the market again. But what I witnessed, and if you saw somebody's 52, then, or, if, or if you were 52, then you know what actually happened was nobody was going in in 09, and the market did well. Then nobody was going in in 2010, and the market did well. And then 2011, we had the, the whole uh, crisis of the, Euro, the European Union falling apart, and so people were not getting involved there. 20, 2012 was a, another great year, uh, and then 2013 was started rocky, and then ended up finishing real well. So what ended up happening was people kept sitting out there like, ah, ah, it's still not safe, right? Because the whole, that 09 to 2014 ride was on a chart, it went straight up, but in real time, it was it was shaky. And so what ended up happening was everybody around 14, they were like, oh, oh by the way, let me, let me let you know the conversations I was having. Every year I would say, it's time to invest. No, you know, I, I get to 2012 and they'd be like, well, Philip, it's going up so much. I'm just going to wait for it to come back down, right? And then 2012 and 13 happened, and then they are like, oh, man. You know, so so by the time you get to 14, 15, people are like, all right, I'm tired of watching everybody else make money. Um, I'm ready to get back in. But the market's basically made no money from 15 to now. And so so you're the 600,000. You know, you get in 14, 15, 
right? And then you get hit again now, and you're like, man, you, you still haven't passed the million dollar mark, right? And so that plays out. So you just don't get back to the million dollar mark that you that you had before. But that's how it plays out. People wonder how people do terrible investments is they is they think they think I'm gonna go to cash out of fear. And so I'm like, if you're gonna get out on fear. You, you best believe you when you get back in the time to get back in is when you're fearful. So if you did the wrong thing, you're not going to do it. And if you wait until it feels right, which means AKA after I'm tired of people making money, that's going to end up being a terrible position, terrible thing for you to do. The only way to it's, it's, it's like starting a business. Everybody wants to start a business, but they don't want to go through the pain of starting a business. Right. There's no successful business owner that doesn't have war stories. If you want to build a portfolio and make money, you have to make sure so you can build a business, but if you got a bad strategy, you're going to fail. But you're still going to struggle whether you got a good strategy or a bad strategy. What I'm saying with investing is you got to be thoughtful. You got to have a good strategy, but you cannot avoid the pain. The pain, the, the, that's that's how the money is made. And people who try and avoid the pain, right, in, in all aspects of life, if, if you try and cheat in business to avoid the pain, it's going to catch up with you. If you try and cheat to be healthy, by taking these drops or whatever, like you're going to lose a lot of money uh, because to be in shape is hard. Same thing works in investing, right? I think you get the point. There's no cheating, right? You have to be thoughtful and then it's going to be painful. But if you got the strategy right, then you're going to be good. I went on a little rant there, but I think it was super important. Next question. Should I pay off debt or invest in the market? And, and these are from clients that get it. They say, hey, Philip. I remember hearing about stories in 2008. You know, I remember how those folks came up by investing when everybody else was panicking. And so I want to I want to cancel the money I'm putting towards my debt elimination plan to pay off my credit cards and I want to dump that in the market. And I think that is a terrible idea. <laughs> and and the people I talked to thought they were shocked. They were like, "Really?" And I was like, "Yeah, listen, listen. Um w- this is a this is a major thing uh, economically." And the worst thing you can do is be in a position in an economic downturn where you don't have your emergency fund and you owe a lot in credit card debt. The, the best use of your dollar is to reduce the amount of money you have to put out. So pay off those, like pay them off faster if you can while still maintaining your emergency fund because this is important in downturn really, really important, especially if, if you're in business or you have inconsistent income, because the cool part about if you're in business and you're able to weather this storm, it's going to be a lot of people who get weeded out. And so if you're able to survive because you don't owe anybody money and you have good cash and you're able to be aggressive to go grab new clients, you'll end up making probably more money than you would have made investing in the stock market because you survived, right? And this particular person was a realtor. And so he understood. I'm like, look at how many realtors came into business the last three or five years. It's saturated. All you got to do is survive. You've been doing this for 10 years. If you survive this, the market is yours because supply and demand is going to be off. So I was like, pay out, keep paying off the debt. Don't worry about trying to take advantage of this market. What's more important is knocking out um, these credit card bills. Next question, stock options. How do I think about when to sell my stock options, grants or warrants that I get from the company that I work for? I have quite a few clients that that um, that get grants, stock options, and warrants as a part of the their compensation. And it's easy to, to think, oh, okay, I got, you know, 300,000 of, of stock options or a million dollars in, in grants and, and not think of that as a part of your portfolio. Meaning any other time, if 
you know, if you had a, you know, $2 million portfolio, but you had a million dollars of your money in one company, you would intuitively say, oh man, that's too, that's, I'm, I'm over concentrated. I need to diversify. But what ends up happening when you get, when the clients I'm talking to have stock options or grants, it'll be a disproportionate amount of their liquid uh, net worth. And they haven't really thought through the investment decision they're making. Meaning if your window of time where you're able to sell opens up and you choose not to sell a big portion of it to get back diversified, you've chosen whether you meant to or not to say, I think this is a better investment option than being more diversified. And when I say that, or when I, you know, I was having a conversation, you know, with clients, um, sometimes I've been able to communicate it right. Sometimes maybe not, but the best way to communicate it is, you know, intuitively you should be well diversified. You shouldn't bet a big chunk of your money in, in one company. As a matter of fact, you know, I think it's not wise to put more than 10% of your, your, your money into one company, no matter how you know, much you believe in it, you know, outside of, you know, you got your own business, you know, you're the CEO, but if you're like an executive or not even in a C-suite of a, of a, of a company and it's more than 10% of your net worth and you're able to bring it down to 10%, I think it's just wise to diversify and do that in general because you, you, you can't control it. And, and, and the odds are of a diversified portfolio being a better bet than that individual um, company it's better because there's like 20,000 plus stocks you can invest in. So what's the odds that the stock you're over? Oh, there's 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 t- more than 20,000 stocks. The majority of them don't beat the market average, right? A diversified portfolio. So what are the odds that your company is going to do better, right? We're all overconfident. So we all think, oh, yeah, I can. But I'm like, listen, you're not the CEO. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and the CEO can't even overpower uh, that a lot of times, but you're 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 not even a CEO, and you're thinking that your company is a special one that's going to do it. Probably not, not over the long term. And so it's better to understand you're making an investment decision and make the investment decision unemotionally, like you don't work for the company. Take a step back. Do I want more than ten percent of my money in in this company? And make the decision and be wise. So many don't, and it and it's it's costing my clients that listen. They're happy. Right. And the majority of my clients listened uh, and they have a disciplined, diversified program of selling down their stakes when their window opens. But I had a couple of hard headed clients that didn't listen. And the conversations we had this week was, man, I wish I would have listened, you know, but it's it's a life lesson. You know, you take your hits and you learn them. You're not going to get them all right. But that's why I'm putting it on the show. Let's talk about old rules and new rules. And this wasn't necessarily a question. And it's kind of an elaboration on what I already talked about, but it allowed me to go deeper. So um, old rules versus new rules is the what I what I meant about the market before. So I was talking about how most people invest based on what they've seen in their in in, in their most recent history of their lifetime, or people in, you know um, in the most basically over the last fifty years, right? They don't think in terms of fifty to 75 years of history, and most don't even go that far back to look in how they invest. But I'm like, hey, in the hist- in the hi- in the recent history of investing, we've not had a big deflationary period of time. You got to go back to like the 30s in America to see that and, and, and how that played out. And so the way you invest has changed. The sticking to just buying the dips indiscriminately um, that we were able to do for the last 30, 40 years, is just, that's not the case anymore. I'm not saying don't invest, but I'm saying if, since, you're, since most of us are U.S.-centric investors and we just blindly buy the dips no matter what, 
I'm gonna give you a perfect example, and I think I answered this in the previous podcast. People were saying, "Oh, Philip, oil and gas dropped, and transportation stocks dropped, and they dropped a lot. I should just buy it, and and that'll be a good bet." I'm like, I don't think it's gonna work <laughs> over the next five years, right? I'm not saying it won't, but I'm saying based on historic context and how this stuff, the probability of it playing out, that's that's not that's not the wisest move. There are better investment alternatives to make uh, in this type of an environment. That's not it. Like that's not even on the radar at all. And so that's what I mean by the the rules have changed. You want to understand. You want to really get into deflation and inflation. And what I would encourage you to do is Google Ray Dalio. Um, how what is it called? Just Google Ray Dalio deleveragings or Ray Dalio. Yeah, Ray Dalio deleveragings will get will get you a book. But he wrote a book about economics. It's a free version you can download, but you can also buy it off Amazon. It's like thick, but it'll take you through uh, a long history of different countries and different periods of time and how they went through deleveraging, which is what we're going through. If you're not a nerd and you're like, Philip, I'm not going to read that book because I read the book multiple times and it's, you know, a good half of it is still something I got to read 10 times to to get because it's dense and deep. But if you don't want to read the book, you can watch how the economic machine works on YouTube uh, is by Ray Dalio on his YouTube channel as well. It's a 30-minute cartoon that explains this as uh, this as well to just give you a picture of like the rules have changed and how you invest in these rules um, or how you invest. You need to invest with these rules in mind. Let's go to the next one. Philip, why is it so important to understand currencies? I talked about old rules, new rules, in in, in the previous answer, and Currencies become a big part of the return factor in where we're going. And, and here's why. You can invest in an international fund, which is invest in um, like places like Europe and Japan, established, developed countries that are non-U.S. And you can buy one fund that is an interna- with, with the same stocks and another fund with the same stocks. But the difference is one of your fund can hedge out the, 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 the currency risk of the U.S., meaning, and I'm not going to explain how they do it, but they can basically say, hey, if the U.S. dollar goes down in value, we're going to minimize that drop affecting your returns. And, and, you, and you look at those two funds over one year, five year, 10 year period of time, they have two different return streams. Same stock, same companies that they're investing in, but one of them hedges out currency risk. Why is that? Well, Part of your return is the value of the currency you're investing in, meaning if you've ever taken a trip somewhere and you're like, oh, the exchange rate of dollars to whatever uh, is different, so I can buy more over here um, for my money or I can buy less over here for my money, like that impacts how much you can buy and selling trade and goods based on where the dollar is. The same thing works with stocks, right? So if you get a certain return and the, the dollar you know, goes up in value, that's positive, right? You'll you'll do net better by being a US dollar investor. But if the dollar does worse than the currency that you're investing in, um, and, and again, all things being equal, because you got you, you might own the same stocks in the same two funds, then you're gonna have a lower return as a US investor investing in those companies. And and so you you wanna understand currencies and the key to understanding currencies is, is that's where you're gonna have to understand the country's balance sheets, like country GDP, uh, are they running a deficit? 
Uh, how competitive is their business community? How expensive are their assets? Who are the politicians? You know, what are their economic policies, right? And and not to make a political argument, but left politicians tend to be not so great for the currency. Uh, those for the right tend to not be. But nowadays, both of them lie to stay in power. And so, you know, we, we have a politician that's supposed to be on the right that actually is, you know, acting like people who are typically irresponsible from the left. And so that kind of rule is going out of the deal. But in, but you want to understand basically you can how responsible financially are the politicians. And business-friendly politicians tend to, over time, make the currency better. So there's all these things you want to look at in history and say, hey, how do I look at the country's political and economic system and, and incorporate that into your decision-making process when you're investing. And I'm struggling through currencies because currencies is such a, I understand it, I know how it works, but I don't want to go too nerd because it's deep and a lot and a lot of, you know, the reason why we get a lot of misinformation right now from our politicians is people just don't understand economics. They don't understand when somebody passes this bill, what the economic effect is. They don't understand inflation and deflation. Um, you know, they don't understand deficits and deficits in and of itself are not bad or good. And in the U.S., we're really bad at understanding what's going on in the world because we don't sit in isolation. Uh, what happens to our currency relative to other currencies in, in the currency w- world, you have to know what's going on everywhere because in the currency world, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like if. If you are in the, and I think I might have used this before, and I keep, you're going to find out I just use the same analogies over and over again. But you'll find, like, if, if you're uh, camping out in the woods and you're with some people and a bear runs up on you, you don't have to outrun the bear because you can't. You just got to outrun everybody else, um, you know, who's outrunning the bear. And so that's how currencies work. You know, you the reason why the U.S. has run a terrible deficit for such a long time and, and has not gotten discipline from a currency yet is because the other countries are doing worse. You know, our economic system is better. Our asset prices were m- more competitive. And so that allowed us to get away with some things for a period of time. But you, you can't outrun uh, math forever. So And things revert to the mean. So my point is you're going to have to get more educated about that stuff. And even if your team is educated on it, the reason why I've putting my email list and talked on a podcast before about and, and talked to my clients about reading how the economic machine works because it's important. Like even though I understand it, I think you need to understand it so you can know what's going on and talk intelligently about it. And then as a political citizen, the people that are making decisions, if you understand what's happening, they won't be able to get over uh, on the American people, you know, like they've done by only putting a Band-Aid on this problem in 08 and being in quote unquote being surprised that this is happening. There's no surprise. Everybody who understands economics knew this. This was how we didn't know how this was going to happen. Nobody can predict that the market would drop 30 percent in one month because of some flu-like virus like that. In the history of things that I heard that was going to melt down the market over the last 10 years, I, I didn't hear one person mention that. But we all know there'll be a trigger, and the the trigger. And when you read, when you look at Ray Dalio's video that he put out in 2011, you'll be like, oh man, he basically like said this was going to happen. Like it, so it's not a secret, (laughs) you know, it's just most people don't understand economics. And so 
definitely listen to that. I think it'll help you and you'll enjoy it. But I'm about to go ahead and sign off now. I know this one was extra long. Email me your questions if you have any. Uh, you can email me at philip at philipwashingtonjr.com. And here's a cool thing. I actually went ahead and signed up for a text messaging platform. So you can also text message me questions at 844-390-1192. That's 844-390-1192 if you prefer text messaging better. Y'all enjoy your day. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.